0: From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. The Senate plans to vote on legislation next week to allow for more lenient sentencing of some criminal offenders and to invest more in prison programs aimed at rehabilitation. Though bipartisan, tough-on-crime Republicans have long held the bill up, that changed last month when President Trump, who campaigned in 2016 as an opponent of leniency, said he supported the bill. If enacted, it will be perhaps the most significant bipartisan policy achievement of the current Congress. I'm joined today, by phone, by Representative Doug Collins, a Georgia Republican who is the bill's chief sponsor. And here in the studio, later, by Todd Ruger, the CQ reporter covering the bill, and by Kevin Ring, the president of FAM, a group that supports sentencing reform, and who is himself a former federal prisoner. Kevin spent more than 15 months at the prison camp in Cumberland, Maryland, as punishment for his role, In a prior career, in the Jack Abramoff lobbying scandal. Hey, Congressman Collins, thanks so much for taking the time. I'm just going to go right into. Yeah, I'm just going to go right into it because I know you're you're on a schedule. So, Congressman Collins, what important changes will this legislation make?
1: The changes that this legislation make are to some to to basic uh, issues that we have in our criminal justice, and basically putting the emphasis back on. Those who want to have a chance to have a new life, to actually gain skills while they're uh, incarcerated, paying their time, but also giving them the skills uh, when they get out to actually come back into society and uh, live a productive life. These things that when we'll start at day one where they'll be evaluated on really some of the reasons that they got there. It could be addiction. It could be mental health issues. It could be job skills. It could be there are a lot of different things that they can then begin to choose to say, these are the things that I want to work on while I'm in. It also, there's a lot of other things that's been going up uh, with sentencing reform. Uh, some of the sentencing, just to make uh, some of it clearer and make it uh, more fair as we look at it. But the biggest overall issue here is the money and morals issue. It's a better way for the federal government to spend their money in the Bureau of Prisons to make sure we have an ability to turn out folks who have a chance at rehabilitation as opposed to just simply putting them in cells and leaving them there. And it's a moral issue. Every, behind every person in those cells is a story. And there's is a, is a, a belief that they can't have redemption, and the president believes this, and we believe that.
0: Now, politicians for a long time have known for their prerogative of getting tough on crime. And in some ways, this is getting softer.
1: No, it's getting smarter. Uh, I think what we have to understand here is is that you know what we're doing right now is turning out that 95% of all inmates on a federal, state, or local level will eventually return to the, to uh, free society for however sort of or, or however long they want. The problem is right now we're seeing as high as 70% recidivism rate. This is, you know, for those who want to say that the, the system right now shouldn't be tinkered with, I just challenge them, why is that a good idea when the results we're getting are not good, the results we're getting are breaking up of families, the results we're getting are destroying uh, areas and neighborhoods because there's no rehabilitative part of this process. So, you know, it sounds good that you're throwing away the key. And nothing about this bill, contrary to popular opinion of some, especially in the Senate, they're not just a mass let out of of dangerous felons here. In fact, there's a lot of uh, safeguards on any of the changes that have been made. And So what we're doing here is simply giving low-level offenders a chance at rehabilitation.
0: Now, your House bill, which passed the, the House in May overwhelmingly, bipartisan vote, was focused on the prison reform issue, helping prisoners yep. prepare for reentry. The Senate is adding some sentencing provisions, which will uh, make it easier for judges to be more lenient in their sentencing for certain types of offenders. Is that, uh, do you see any problems in the House for that?
1: Well, this is something that, uh, frankly, a lot of times people have gotten so unused to. I use that term in a loose way, unused to seeing. Uh, the Senate and the House actually worked together to form legislation. That this is exactly the way it's supposed to work. We knew the bill that we needed to get started in the, in the House dealing with prison reform. We knew that that was a good uh, first step, as the First Step Act is called. It was our step to get it through the House, to get it to the Senate, so that they could then debate the issues. Because the Senate had actually went farther in several of these ideas than the House was ready to go. So what we had to do was say, here's where the house is at this point, and the senate could put it, uh, you know, language in that we have been working on, and we've never sort of left our hands from this process. My office has been negotiating this with, you know, the majority leader in the senate was Mr. Corn and Mr. Durbin, Mr. Uh, you know Schumer, with the rest of the folks, and also Grassley and, and Graham and Mike Lee and many others. So it, what we're finding is, is in the terminology you use there, is more lenient. It's it's just giving the judges discretion in cases that are narrowly defined by exceptions and parameters to make sure that, that we're finding a true uh, result of punishment and redemption at the same time.
0: So there are some detractors out there, like Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, who says it's still going to be too easy on violent criminals.
1: Well, the, the thing, most of the issues that with violent criminals is what he is using that, throwing that term around violent criminals if we're letting out rapists and murderers and stuff like that. And that's just wrong. But basically my concern with Mr. Cotton, and, and I've known uh, Senator Cotton for a long time, he, this is a scare tactic that if he wants to go down this path, is really down hard. It's really, uh, for me personally, to say this is, you're not having a system right now that works. We're having a system that is, that is punitive but not redemptive, and it's not uh, being a good a fiscal conservative, or a, frankly, from a moral standpoint, is not working. Uh, but I do take, uh, you know, do not take lightly the the implication that is he's trying to make that this is a get out of jail free card for anybody who does any crime. That's just simply not true, and it's simply a scare tactic that, frankly, I think at this point in time is not going to work. The president's not buying it. The House and Senate folks, the majorities in both, are not buying it. And it's and it's sort of sad that he would classify giving people hope, taking women out of shackles when they're getting. Uh, having a baby. We actually still do that. When this bill actually changed that, if he wants to vote against that, then I would have him go to any family in Arkansas that has had that issue and explain to them why this is not about giving persons a second chance. It's not about taking away their punishment. It's not about doing away with their crime. It's about being smart in how we do this.
0: But the discretion that it would give to judges, it's for people who didn't weren't violent in whatever crime they
1: committed. Exactly. There's a, there's a setup structure on who is eligible for it and how they're eligible for it. And, you know, some of it just goes back to there's some people, and maybe Senator Cotton's one of them, that just believe that if you make a mistake that that your life has been ruined forever and you just don't have another option. I hope that in his life and in my life that enough people have given us grace in our world not to overlook what we've done, but if there's an opportunity to say, look, if you want a chance to redeem your mistake, to come back in society in a better situation, then we're going to give you that opportunity. If you choose not to, that's the path that you take. But when we're uh, in the federal government spending money in our Bureau of Prisons, then we need to get an investment, especially with workforce and everything else. These are a chance to put communities whole again. I will stand with communities whole.
0: Now, you're the chief sponsor of the House legislation. What got you interested in this issue so that you've dedicated the time to it?
1: When, I, when Governor Deal started uh, his term as governor a little eight years ago, was we found that we were spending $3 billion in our correction system. When we were struggling for our education funding, when we were struggling for law enforcement, we were struggling in a lot of our areas, and we were looking at $3 billion being spent. We said there's got to be a better way. And when you looked at Texas, you looked at Kentucky, you looked at Oklahoma, you looked at states who have been since began that process, North Carolina, what we found was you can still be tough on crime. You can still have a system at which crime rates are reduced, but you can do it in a smarter way. So for me, it became, as I always like to call it, and I've called it this, for, for a long time, it's M&Ms for me. It's like not the candy M&Ms, it's money and morals. It's about being smart fiscally with the money that we're entrusted with by the people and their taxes to make sure that we're keeping them safe and properly punishing, but also at the same point, uh, having a moral component which says that people are uh, deserving of a second chance if they are able to choose that.
0: And this bill famously has brought together people who are ideological opposites at a time when bipartisanship is pretty rare. Why so?
1: Because I think of what I just talked about. I think every side can see that this is a step forward. At the end of the day, many times we think of bills simply as pieces of paper with lines of words on them. This actually, I've said this before, this has faces behind those words.
0: Thank you, Congressman Collins, for joining us.
1: It's always good to be with you. Thank you.
0: Welcome, Todd and Kevin. Thank you. Thanks. Todd, Representative Collins spoke in pretty general terms about the bill's content. Can you give us some more details about what's in there?
2: Uh, sure. There's there's two main sides. First, the prison side, which is the goal is to try to— all, all these prisoners who go to federal prison are going to be out someday. So it's to try to ease that transition back in to the society. This has been done by a lot of states with great success. And so this is modeled after that and brought up to the federal area. There's programming uh, to try to reduce their chances of committing another crime. They get a chance to earn credits for pre-release custody. Uh, that will help them sort of, uh, you know, live in the community before they actually just get dumped out of prison. Um, there's training. There's drug treatment. And this is a pretty non-controversial part of the bill. Um, it passed the House uh, by I think like, you know, 360 to 59 um, back in May. I think it was May. And uh, that was
0: the focus exclusively of the House bill. Correct.
2: And that had the backing of President Trump and the White House. And so that, um, that was the main focus, and, and the, but the holdup was in the Senate, uh, Democrats and some Republicans like uh, Chuck Grassley, the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman, had forged a compromise, and that compromise includes sentencing changes. Um, those sentencing changes uh, have, have, are pretty modest from where they were when the people first, when senators first introduced these changes, and that was part of this compromise, and they've had it going for years and years. And now to get the bill to this point, they've had to compromise even more. But for examples of, of provisions, um, there's one about stacking firearm charges uh, for first-time offenders. There's a guy named uh, Weldon Angelos out of Utah who got 55 years for doing three drug sales of marijuana uh, because the, pro- the, the prosecutors stacked these firearm charges on top of each other. Uh, the, the judge at his sentencing said, this isn't a fair sentence, but my hands are tied by the federal law. And that was one of the things that got Senator Mike Lee from Utah involved in this, and he's been a a really strong voice. Um, There's also like an expanded safety valve, so it gives judges a little more leeway on on nonviolent drug offenders. Um, And then back in 2010, there was this disparity between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Uh, Sentencing was much greater for crack, and that disproportionately uh, affected the black community in America. Uh, They they came to an agreement to to reduce that disparity, but they didn't make it retroactive, which means there's some people, uh, dozens of people basically in prison who are who are serving longer sentences under something that they've already decided was unfair. Um, but it hasn't affected them. So it's, it's small sentencing provisions like that, that that are in here.
0: So when I think about the tough-on-crime legislation of the 1990s and before, I think about things like three strikes and you're out. Is this getting rid of all that? Is this going to a more uh, flexible system for judges?
2: Uh, yeah. That, well, there are some, some uh, provisions in there for, for getting rid of those tougher sentences. They, they basically said that, you know, those things are filling our prisons, uh, our prisons are overcrowded our prisons are costing us a lot of money and and fundamentally they're unfair they're too long so um, they're trying to ratchet that back but but in the in the process of trying to get more and more support for this bill they've sort of carved out all these little pieces along the way that have have really reduced the overall impact of what
0: this right bill. and the context here is that the United States incarcerates uh, I don't know a, a lot of people more than any other industrialized nation and it costs money that uh, reducing those costs appeals to conservatives, um, giving people a second chance appeals to uh, conserv- some conservatives and to liberals.
2: Well, yeah, so I think the, the one of the most striking things about this is that it has been bi- so bipartisan, this effort. Um, the prison one is is really bipartisan. The sentencing part has gotten a lot of advocates from both sides. The before, you know, uh, before Trump got into the White House, Mitch McConnell really just stopped this from getting to the floor, even though the backers said they had a supermajority majority. the Senate Majority Leader. Yeah. Right. Mitch McConnell. Senate, right. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who controls what goes on the floor. And once uh, Trump got into office, this, the backers of the said, we got to get Trump on board. We got to get Trump on board. Jared Kushner, a senior advisor, has taken this kind of on as one of his things that he wanted to do and find. And, and when Trump finally started getting involved in this, he had prison reform, prison reform. Uh, events, n- but not sentencing. He never mentioned the sentencing. So it just seemed like there was this divide between what Republicans wanted and, uh, you know, tough on crime Republicans and, and that's Democrats interesting. And,
0: other. and Kush- Jared Kushner, the president's son in law, of course, his uh, Kushner's father had, had spent time in prison. And Trump himself, during 2016, ran as a very tough on crime uh, Republican. And this passage of this bill, as a result, seemed like a long shot. But he suddenly came around.
2: Uh, Right. I I mean, I think uh, Jared Kushner was very influential in that. And Jared uh, Kushner has done a lot of media and outreach on the Hill. And um, it it ended up being uh, where Mitch McConnell had made a a promise to some of his members that he said, we will whip this after the election. And if there's the votes, then we'll move to it. And then it just sort of kept saying, well, maybe we don't have time. Maybe we don't have time. But there, there was enough pressure. Uh, for instance, Jared Kushner went on uh, Sean Hannity's show on Fox News and, and touted the bill.
3: Uh, these reforms are based on what's worked and it'll make a big difference. And so uh, the president's built an amazing bipartisan coalition uh, of Democrats and Republicans, and we're very close right now. And hopefully this will get to the floor and we'll be able to have a big uh, bipartisan celebration Is before the... uh, Christmas.
2: And Fox News itself said that they would back this bill. And so, you know, you just... Ha- and, and then there's all these outside groups um, from a, across the ideological spectrum who have backed this effort for years and really worked hard a, at lobbying senators and, and trying to get get rid of any misunderstandings about what this bill
0: would actually do. And, and some of the key senators uh, who opposed it also fell away, like Ted Cruz of Texas, David Perdue of Georgia, uh, leaving really um, just Tom Cotton of Arkansas, the big opponent. And when the Senate passes its bill, then can we expect, Todd, that the House is just going to say, okay, we agree with this with the Senate version?
2: Uh, well, there's every indication that that would happen. Um, the the, uh, the Speaker, uh, Ryan of Wisconsin, Paul Ryan, he has said that he's generally backed these efforts in the past. Um, the, the, the first step bill, the, which was the one that just did the prison reform, uh, passed overwhelmingly, and so there's every sign that it would happen, particularly because it has the backing of President Trump.
0: You're listening to CQ on Congress. You can subscribe to this podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. I'm going to turn now to Kevin Ring, president of FAM. Kevin, does your personal experience with the criminal justice system inform your support for this bill?
3: It does. I worked for FAM for six years while I was fighting the government in my own case, and I learned a lot about crazy sentences that people were getting because FAM tends to profile individual cases where mandatory minimums are misapplied. Cases like Wel- Weldon Angelos. Uh, FAM's uh, pre- first founder, Julie Stewart, was at Weldon Angelos' sentencing 14 years ago and brought that case to national attention. And by doing so, showed people what was wrong with the gun stacking charge. And so now, you know, when you were able to personalize a policy problem like that, you're able to get the results we're seeing today. So I knew their sentencing laws were crazy from my work at FAM then when I spent my time in prison I saw people who needed some rehabilitation I mean I was a unicorn I was a law school educated policy guy from Capitol Hill I didn't need a lot of programming but I saw people who could have used not only drug and alcohol treatment which is pretty much there but just educational opportunities anger management uh, behavioral counseling all sorts of things that might have helped them job training things that would help them get back on their feet when they came out. And there was very little of that. People were being warehoused. So when I came out, I went back to FAM and said, we've got to work on prison reform in addition to sentencing because they're connected. Um, the length of your sentence matters to your reentry because if you're in there for 10 years when two would have been enough, no amount of programming is going to make up for your job skills that atrophied. And so some people though that who were there had really no job skills. They didn't have much of a first chance. And so it just seemed like This is the ultimate captive audience. We're paying to house them, feed them, clothe them for a period of years. And the idea that we wouldn't use that opportunity to sort of give them the opportunity to be rehabilitated made no sense to me. And so when I came out, we did a federal prison report. We surveyed over 2,000 federal prisoners, asked them what classes they were taking, what classes they wanted, what the conditions were like. And then from that, we came up with recommendations, many of which are in this
0: bill. And so this legislation, does it give you confidence that these sort of programs would be spread across the prison system? Well, the focus there is
3: going to be down the road when Congress has to appropriate money for these programs. So this bill, which I'm glad it does, authorizes $75 million a year for additional federal prison programming. But we know authorization is just sort of the promise and the Appropriations Committee is going to have to find the money to actually fund these programs. If they don't, it's going to be a problem because right now the prisons are understaffed so you don't have the teachers and the infrastructure in place to provide this programming. Worse, you have people who are cooks and chefs and uh, landscape people being asked to fill in as guards because the prisons are so understaffed, which is creating safety problems. So the prisons have a host of problems, and the, you know, a lot of times people say, I don't want to just throw money at it, but the prisons need some investment to start doing the rehabilitation they are supposed to do. And the
0: prisoners, uh, the prison guards union has expressed those concerns, I know.
3: Yes, because they, when they are understaffed and the ratio gets low between, you know, or gets high between the number of prisoners and staff, they're in danger.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and that's an issue. I know it came up recently with the the Whitey Bulger uh, situation where he was uh, imprisoned in West Virginia is one of the most notorious for the understaffing, right? Yeah, there's been a number of murders in Hazleton. Why he was sent there is still a mystery, I think. So what about the sentencing piece? How big a deal is it? How many people would it affect? Well, th- one
3: thing that's interesting, and, and I was listening to Todd's sort of overview is, You know, for the past few years, the idea or the general wisdom was that the sentencing was controversial and the prison reform wasn't. And what's happened now is just the opposite. People aren't really worried about the sentencing provisions. They're focused in on the early release provisions and the prison reform. So that's been interesting to see happen. Part of the reason is because the sentencing provisions aren't being made retroactive. So for the politicians, a lot of times they don't want to sign on to something that is going to allow people out of prison because they're afraid they're gonna somebody's going to go commit a high-profile crime and they're going to get blamed for it and so you see tom cotton senator cotton doing this a little bit saying there's gonna be another willie horton uh reference to the infamous case in the 88 campaign where somebody got out on a furlough and and uh, raped and killed somebody so he's playing that fear card but on the sentencing provisions most of them are prospective only they apply in going forward the retroactive for crack i think people see as just a basic fairness issue. There's about 2,500 people who are sitting in jail for um, sentences that Congress repudiated eight years ago. And so they said, this is unfair. And we told those stories of those people to get the change in the law, and then they don't benefit. So that seemed incredibly inequitable. And so that fix is being made. Not a lot of controversy about it. The other ones really are getting at the worst of the worst mandatories. So you brought up the Weldon Angelo's case. that The prosecutors there waited till he committed three drug sales and then stacked those gun enhancements on top. That's not how that statute was supposed to work. It's supposed to wait until you've committed three separate offenses and then you get enhancements. The other thing is the three strikes law where people are getting life sentences for their third drug conviction. This is a modest change from life to 25 years. This is not a slap on the wrist. Uh, 25 years for some people may end up being a natural life sentence. But so there really are modest changes and so I I think that's why you're not hearing so much backlash. Modest. What would you do if you were writing the bill? I'd eliminate all mandatory minimum sentences. I mean, that won't surprise people, but there's just no evidence that they work. Um, the, you know prosecutors, It makes prosecutors' jobs easier when they're allowed to go in and threaten people with decades in prison. But we've seen in jurisdictions across the country now that have been reforming their sentencing laws that even without mandatory minimums, they're still getting high rates of uh, plea, plea deals. Um, during the Obama administration, where they had a Smart on Crime initiative and Attorney General Holder instructed prosecutors to use mandatory minimums less often, they still had high plea rates, they still had crime go down. So there's just not a lot of evidence they work, but for prosecutors, it's a tool you don't want to give up.
0: Okay. And this these ideas have been floating around on Capitol Hill for years. and. The fact that there, this it looks like this bill will be enacted now, should we all be giving Donald Trump a lot of credit? We should be giving him some credit. But
3: as you said, these ideas have been around for 27 years, I mean longer than the 30 years since we've had mandatory minimums. People have known there was a problem. You look at states like Louisiana where they just repealed their drug mandatory minimums. Other states have been bolder in, I mean Texas doesn't even have mandatory census, right? So there are some jurisdictions that have gone a lot further. But for President Trump, some people say, well, this is a big turnaround. Um, but I think because he has been so invested in the prison reform side of it, he talks about second chances, and he also is, talks about jobs, jobs, jobs. And so I think he's been convinced that if these people can get back on their feet and get employed, that's going to make them less likely to reoffend. So I still think it fits into his public safety mantra. But look, make no mistake about it, we're not delusional about this. He still talks about executing drug dealers and fentanyl dealers i still think he has that side of him but uh it also may be he's having a personal experience right now with the legal system and realizing the awesome power that prosecutors have that certainly opened my eyes it opened up jared kushner's father's eyes and so there we may be seeing some of that too
0: thank you kevin for coming on our show and thank you todd sure thanks And thank you all for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall. You can also follow me at Sean Zeller.